not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined by my co-hosts Natalie Bucknell and Michael Steindl. Hello Kay. Hello Kay, hello listeners. Our federal government continues to display a lack of leadership and clear policy for addressing climate change, and our state governments are still too sluggish to help us avert disaster. At this critical point, as we at BZE have been identifying, grassroots action is really taking off and becoming more and more important in trying to achieve zero emissions. So today, as we've done occasionally in the past, we're stepping away from the usual hard technology discussion where we do in fact have many of the solutions, to the human side, where the technology of our lizard brain is stopping many of us facing climate change as the emergency it is, and hence adopting the solutions we have. Our guest today, Lynn Doe, certainly does not have that failing, launching heavily into action from the age of 14. Lynn is involved in sustainable development, social change, social justice, and works daily to foster grassroots environmental change. She obtained a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Environmental Studies from the University of Melbourne. She's completed a fellowship at the Centre for Sustainable Leadership and further professional studies at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hello, Lynn. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's wonderful to have you with us. I'm exhausted just reading through all your um, achievements so far. But Lynn, tell us... How and when did you realise that you wanted to get involved in climate change activities? Your light bulb moment, I believe. My light bulb moment is um, in so many different ways a light bulb moment and it still sort of makes me cringe sometimes to tell the story of how I got involved because it sounds like such a cliche that people often ask, really, did you make that up? Was that just for the spoon? Was it just for the story? Uh, (laughs) But I tell you, it really was not. Um, I learned about climate change when I was in school, uh, when it was part of my science classes, but also part of my humanity classes as well. And I started to just hear a lot more about it. So this was in 2005, 2006, where climate change was nowhere near as mainstream as it is today. And as I was learning about climate change, I kept thinking about, well, okay, what, what can I do about it? And most of the solutions that were sort of being touted then and still are now, which are great, were so inaccessible to me. The idea of putting solar panels on your roof when you're 14 and don't have access to a house or the money just wasn't possible. A little bit difficult. Um, driving less was also pretty easy, wasn't driving at all. Uh, so there were just so many things that didn't feel like they were options for me until I realized that, oh, hey, I can change my lights. And that was something that I could do. And that was something that we were able to do within the house that I was living in at home from incandescence over to fluorescence. Uh, and then I realized, well, actually, there are so many other lights out there. As it turns out, the, the beauty of electricity um, everywhere. So I started off with this campaign that I 
aptly called Change a Million Light Bulbs. I was not a very creative child. Uh, and just trying to think about, well, okay, how can I get my school on board? That's something that I already know. I'm there every single day. I'm aware of who I can talk to. And that was how the campaign started. And that was how I sort of delved headfirst into what I now know was environmental campaigning. Fantastic. So when you were 16 years old, quite old at that stage, I'd imagine, you thought you were one of the first selected to do Al Gore's climate reality training. I think uh, before, maybe before you turn 22, I'm going to, I'm going to be, be very generous. Before you turn 22, you think the age that you're at is like the wisest you'll ever be. You know (laughs) absolutely everything. And when I look back now at what I was doing when I was 16 or like emails that I was sending then, I was like, no wonder no one replied to me. I would never reply to this today. No, so when I was 16, I was really fortunate. So I was halfway through running this light bulb campaign. Al Gore was coming out to Australia for the second time to host an Inconvenient Truths uh, sort of organizational manifestation, which is the Climate Reality Project. And I was selected as one of six young people to sort of be trained, uh, which was really fascinating. We were joined by about 200 other people from all around Australia who didn't look like me and not not just from an age perspective but also in terms of what they were doing in their careers in my head I didn't really have a a visual image of what it meant to be an environmentalist what it meant to care what it meant to be doing something but I was there surrounded by people who were farmers not something I had ever considered for myself people who were bankers also something I never considered but then there were doctors people that work at non-profits people that focus on policy people focused on the technology people focused on the human side and it was Um, At the age of 16, when you're talking about careers counselling and you're considering what subjects you end up studying at school or university, it was pretty phenomenal to see that you could be doing anything and still caring about the environment and climate change and doing something on it. And Lynn, after that, you did the Centre for Sustainability Leadership training. What what did that involve and what came out of that training? For me, that that involved, uh, I think, my first awakening of, ah, Turns out I don't know everything, so so that that was good for my ego and humility, I believe. Uh, but it also meant that I I just picked up so many different skills, uh, some things that I had seen and utilized before. The simple things of this is a meeting, this is what you should do in a meeting, this is how you have a good meeting. Oh, this is why people complain about meetings. I get that now. To skills that I didn't even realize might be necessary for me to do. Um, change in the world and even if I'm not an expert in some of those areas now I feel at least I'm conversant and aware of what's needed in a team what's needed in an organization and change Uh, and what's great about the Center for Sustainability Leadership's program is it wasn't just abstract and theory so it wasn't just do your readings through this assignment um, which I know sometimes school can be like but we actually also had to implement a project as well to test our skills in quote-unquote real world uh, and from that an organization called Our Say uh, that some of our listeners here today might have heard of a scene online. Our Say is a website that connects everyday citizens, people like you and me, to our decision makers, whether that's our politicians or people that are running businesses through a question and asking new age democracy platform. And it was really great to learn all of these skills and start this organization as a result of it. And our say is still uh, an organization, a website, something that local councils are using all across Australia. So you've probably seen it in a couple of iterations now. Uh, I remember using it at the federal election, had no idea that you mm. founded it. Mm-hmm. So how exactly does our say work? If wh- how am I likely to come across it, and and what would I do when I when I did? Yeah, so our say, um, you're more likely to come across it in two ways. So one um, is probably through sort of the mass engagements that we do, where we have people like the prime minister on board. We had Julian Assange on board at one point, and these are people that 
all Australians and really a lot of people in the world, so not even limited to Australia, are interested in. And the way that the platform would work is that you would ask a question and rather than just sort of having a first and best dressed or like, oh, you're my mate, I'll pick your question, we'll make sure that your is the question that we ask in the interview that we at the end end up live streaming. Um, it gets decided through a system of democracy. So instead, it's up to you to rally your friends, people that you know, people of the general public. Uh, so sort of implicitly teaching people how to campaign online and sort of rally support for whatever their cause or question is. Uh, and you, everyone gets seven votes. And then through those seven votes, you allocate them into the questions that you think are the most pertinent of the day that you think really haven't been discussed in mainstream media, but it's what the people want to hear about. So that's the first way that you probably see it. And then the second has been through local council taking it on board as a way to just sort of do ongoing engagement. So some councils will um, host these hot seats every week and then you can just log in every week if you're a citizen of whichever council it happens to be and ask questions of your councillors or various other people. So would I receive some notification from my council about that or would they just advertise it generally? How does that work? It'd be a combination of the two and it's totally up to each of the councils. Some of the councils are really... Uh, I guess, already in communication with their various constituents through emails. Uh, some will do it through local community, as we are doing today. Some will do it through the local newspaper. So it really depends on which council and the size of the council and what else they're doing as well. So, Lynn, you've neatly married technology there to help community involvement. Um, that was, at, what, the age of 17 or something? How did you get pulled together the resources for that? Where did you get the technology and the ideas to do that? Uh, luckily, I was much older at that age. Otherwise, and even then, I don't, sometimes I think age is, age is a really funny thing in that when you're young, you think absolutely everything is possible because you're unaware of how difficult things are. But even if I was older than I am today or was then, uh, I think I'm still imbued with that sense of optimism and that belief that anything is possible. And it's not until I start doing the work where I'm like, oh... Mm. I understand now. I understand like what an uphill battle this will be, but that's sort of okay. So uh, around the time I was working on our say, I was really fortunate to not be working by myself, which was really the case with most of the engagements and sort of various attempts that I've had to create change is my biggest advice to anybody. And the thing that I always constantly remind myself of, if you think it's all too much, it's probably because you haven't involved enough people. Uh, and people are difficult to work with. Everyone has a different opinion, a different preference on like the ways that they want to do things. But extra people is extra capacity. And I think the more diverse the way that you've set up your team, your organization, whatever that is, like the richer the idea is at the end of the day as well. Society is really diverse. So if the rest of your team looks like you, that's probably not a sign that you're going to appeal to that many people. So that was sort of how we pulled together the resources for our say is that I was joined by five other co-founders, which is, you know, for some people like, oh, that's a lot of people. It's like, these are so five, so myself as well. So six people who all had such different experiences, such different networks, such different resources we could pull upon. Um, were they all part of the same leadership Three intake. of us were. So three of us were part of the um, Centre for Sustainability Leadership, was, which was how we met one another. Um, and then two others joined uh, because we realised that there were a whole bunch of skills that even the three of us didn't have. So we uh, approached two more people. And then the sixth person was our initial investor. Okay. So this is before you were 18, which is when you went older. to Copenhagen <laughs> for the World Climate Conference. So how did it, that influence what you did next? Copenhagen was really transformational for me just because of 
um, what it ended up with. So I've spent the last two years working on international climate change negotiations through an organization called The Verb. Uh, and I've only recently come back to Australia uh, sort of at the end of last year. And Copenhagen was sort of what made me aware of, I guess, what social movements and social change looks like around the world as well and what it looks like when it's driven by young people, when it's driven by women or Indigenous people, people on the front lines, but also what it looks like when it's driven by businesses um, as well and nation states or cities and local government. And for me, Copenhagen back in 2009 was one of the first instances where I had seen that. And there is something about just seeing things. And people say that about travel all the time, like you can read about these places, but when you see it and experience it, it's completely different. So Copenhagen opened up my eyes to the fact that similar to the climate reality training, there's no standard environmentalist, like there's no archetype that you need to be. And similarly, on a much larger institutional scale, there was also no archetype for where you could create that change either. So that was what Copenhagen was for me, actually, was like that that moment of realisation of, again, the diversity that exists and needs to exist as well. And the verb came out of that experience. The verb slowly came out of that experience. Um, the verb was, I always describe it as a very 21st century organisation, which makes no sense to anyone else but me. Uh, but in the sense <laughs> that we, we when when we started the verb, we weren't even called the verb. We didn't quite know what we were doing, but we realized there are maybe a couple of gaps in the way that we're talking about climate change, especially on this international policy level. A lot of what we were reading was either super policy wonky uh, and very niche and detail oriented, which is for some people, but certainly not for me. Uh, or it was on the other side of just like fluffy platitudes and vague numbers that didn't necessarily mean a lot either which is fine because that's sort of what you need sometimes the news to be if you want to be on top of everything, but not that great if you wanted to do something with that knowledge. So that was how the verb came to be and that was what we've sort of spent the last two years doing is figuring out how can we talk about policy without making it too technical and how can we include stories about solutions without just making them those good news stories that you always hear about and actually tie them in with the policy and remind people that as much as around the world and in Australia as well, there are individuals, organizations and institutions working towards change. We're still so far behind where we need to be. Mm. And it's not about causing that sense of despair, but it's also not about being too hopeful that everyone thinks, oh, well, that's great that that person's doing it. I don't have to do anything or my business doesn't have to shift. And how do you join those two together, which is what we sort of spent two years trying to figure out. And it's it was hard. It was really hard. So Copenhagen was good and also bad created a lot of work for me. <laughs> so how, how does the verb deal with that, that issue, that dichotomy? This, this is also something that we face with our radio program that we're always trying to juggle. Yeah, through so much experimentation, um, and there were so many instances where we would try or something and be like, oh, that was definitely not the way, let's never do that again. And sort of towards the, at some point, we figured out that where we sort of worked best was working with people that were already in some form experts within their realm. So these are people that have really fastidiously studied oceans or really passionate about solar energy or grew up as a, in a farming family in Kenya and really understood like the impacts that climate change will have on agriculture. So we took those people, equipped them with some communication skills so that they could tell the stories from their perspective as someone that deeply understands it. I think to be able to simplify something well, you need to understand it extremely well first. Um, it's not as simple as gleaning like three things from the internet and being like, yes, I am now equipped to write about the 
battery power storage. Um, I am not. I tried to do that the other day, realized why it didn't work. And once we were able to find these people and equip them with these skills, the way that we sort of approached our editorial uh, stories and stance was that every story has to have a real human element. You need to also talk about a specific person that's implementing something or an organization. So there has to be that human element, but it also has to link to a policy thing as well. So how was their work enabled or actually much, much harder because a policy didn't exist. So was that work possible because a state or a country had a carbon tax in place? Um, Was that not possible because there were no solar subsidies? So even though solar PV costs is coming down, it's still really inaccessible to those in our community that probably most need it. So how do you intersect the two? And we just made sure that anytime we talked about anything, we had both elements. For those of you that have just joined us, this is the BZE Climate Solutions Show, and we're talking today to Lynn Doe about social change and climate. We should probably clarify for listeners, I don't think we've really explained what the verb is. <laughs> There's also that, yes, thank you. That's what I mean, 21st century, century organisation, you don't have to be clear about what you are, you could be anything. Um, so the, the verb, to be fair, was something and still is something. It's a newswire service, um, so we have our own website where we produce content and we have our own pool of writers where we sort of call upon and people that we interview and all all of those things that you would expect with any media publication. But the way that we worked in terms of reaching our audience is actually really similar to community radio around syndication. Um, we knew that there was no way we were ever going to be the biggest media audience with the limited budget that we had. So we found people that were willing to republish our content um, to their specific audiences. And that allowed us, again, as I was talking about diversity earlier for our listeners that were already following along, we were able to reach people that probably never would have otherwise found out about the verb through social networks, but because they're already on website X or reading local paper Y or reading some sort of industry publication and through our partnerships with those various types of media platforms, we were able to reach them. And when you said equip people to communicate their story, is that basically helping elucidate the story from them or...? Uh, So two things. Um, We ran a training program with all contributors of The Verb. So uh, there's a weirdly very extensive application process uh, that some people tell me was really fun. And following on from being selected to be part of The Verb, we also run people through our online and where possible our in-person training program as well that just equips people with like various skills and also... I guess like teaching them the verb way, the ways that we do things. And we try to integrate that into the rest of our organization as well. So it wasn't just a, you're going to do this onboarding and training process. And then six months from now, you're never going to hear that word again, or you're never going to see that process. So at every step of the way, when we were working through the stories, uh, there was always an editor that would work with each of the writers and each of the editors were equipped with these questions that I'm asking, well, where's the human element? Where's your policy element? How can you link these two? If it's not possible to link these, to why are we running this story because we wanted to make sure that those were always the two connected things. So in 2013, you named National Geographic Young Conservationists of the Year. What led to that award? I think what led to that award was almost everything we've been talking about, actually. Right. So I think it was it was really the, um, I don't even remember who put in a nomination for me for that, but it was a really lovely recognition i mean personally is always lovely it was something that i could show my parents is look this is what i'm doing i guess have been doing something useful (laughs) don't worry like i have external validation but i think it's also that thing of realistically 
Working to create change can be really, really difficult, whether you take the form of activism or even if you take the form of working within your existing company um, and settings to create change. Sometimes we don't see that change uh, in the first week or even the first year. Uh, and sometimes that change might not come for a decade. So I know that it can be really difficult to not see the output of all of the inputs that we might be putting into things. Um, and for me, that award was just a really small uh, slightly public reminder that, oh, okay, like you are doing something useful. And I know that you don't necessarily need wards to feel that way, but sometimes it can be really easy to get really distracted in the work and dig yourself into these big holes of despair around, ah, oh, climate change isn't getting better. But I like did five more hours last week than I already did on top of my 80 hour week. And it becomes a rapid downward cycle. So for me, that was sort of what I see any public recognition um, as is just a hey, you're at least like doing something and moving in the right direction. Yeah, I can understand. There's a lot of people that have put in very many hours and it's good to have that recognition. So, Lynn, you worked with ACF during 2013-14. What work were you involved with there? When I was at the Australian Conservation Foundation, it was around the time when a lot of Australian organisations were realising that maybe just advocacy strategies weren't working anymore, just having a small number of highly influential, highly senior and excellent at what they do, people doing advocacy within the hallways of Canberra or elsewhere wasn't necessarily working. How do we build people power and how do we make sure that people power isn't just having a million people on the streets, but a million people on the streets willing to do a little bit more every week continually? So how do you take someone from just signing a petition to running that petition next time, to writing a letter to their MP, to trying to meet with their MP the next time. So uh, community organising was what I was working on at the Australian Conservation Foundation, trying to equip our members. Um, a bit with, like the Sierra Club did in the US. Yes, very similar to what the Sierra Club did in the US, but equipping the members of the Australian Conservation Foundation with the different ways in which that they could get involved that sometimes would be supported by the organisation, whether it be ACF or anyone else or that they could independently go out and do as well. So just, I guess, trying to, well, I mean, a very weirdly non-technical term in the context of what BZA sometimes does, uh, but like, how do we decentralise power? And that's not just about the energy grid, but also how do we decentralise the human power that we have as well around decision-making uh, and the ability to contribute to society? So what, on, you know, following on from that, what do you think are the most effective tools for change across the wide range of, of aspects that you've worked on? What, what do you recommend for people if they're thinking, what do I do? It's a question I ask myself almost every day, which yes. is worrying because I feel I should just wake up knowing the answer already. <laughs> and it's in part because everything and anything is the answer. So right now I'm working at the Climate Reality Project. And uh, one of the reasons why I love working there is, I work with 650-odd Australians uh, who all care about climate change in some shape or form, but all have such vastly different backgrounds. And for them, I can't just say, hey, this week, go and do a petition, because for some context, that doesn't make sense at all. Um, nor does meeting a politician, nor does meeting with their CEO, nor does starting a company. So it really has varied. And for me, that diversity is great, but sometimes really difficult because there is no one answer. And I think one of the reasons why um, my... My life has been so diverse is in part because, yes, I am very much a millennial that like likes change all the time and the chaotic nature of not quite being in any one place for too long, but also because I'm constantly asking myself that question. And it's one that, like I said, sometimes can be a little bit de debilitating, but it's also one that has allowed me to ensure that I'm always doing the thing that I think is the most valuable contribution at the time. It's where I think I can be the most effective as well. So... 
that's that's what I would say is just constantly ask that question and when you know, you'll know, which is vague, but one day it will make sense. <laughs> so that's you've come nearly full circle now being back at the Climate Reality Reality Project. What was your aim in coming back to that? I think my aim in coming back to that was very much what I was just talking about in terms of there are so many different ways that you can create change and there's not one single way, but how can we as an organisation support 650 different ways? Um, and that's not even that many people in the scheme of things when you think about the size of other organisations. So we're hoping that over the next three to five years, we'll figure out different ways that we can further decentralise that power to enable sort of just people to do things where they're already leaders in their own right. And that's that's why I came back. In terms of what the actual goals are, do you have them specifically? So the Climate Reality Project is an international organisation and internationally we are focused on, now that we have the Paris Agreement and this really ambitious goal of keeping warming to 1.5 degrees and being net zero by 2050 and pretty lofty goals, what does that it's actually still look inadequate. like? <laughs> and it's pretty crazy because yeah. we just—it's it, it, such a—it's such a weird conundrum. Um, is the big question of well, what does that actually mean in reality? What does that mean our governments need to do? What does that mean our businesses need to do? What does that mean for the way that we individually choose to live our lives? And you know, from things like flying or like the ways in which we interact with the natural environment already. So that's what Climate Reality is setting out to do is localising what the Paris Agreement means in various contexts, both geographically, but also sectorally as well. Okay. So I think we're just about coming to the end of the show. And can you tell our listeners where they could get more information about this? Yes. So if you're interested in The Verb, you can just Google The Verb. The website is www.theverb.org. And for Climate Reality, to go to the Australian website rather than any of our international counterparts' websites, uh, the website is climatereality.org.au. Just quickly, is there another Climate Reality training coming up in Australia? It's a controversial question that you've just asked. It's why my face just flinched. Uh, not in 2017, but we're hoping for 2018 or 2019, so I'd keep posted. Uh, but there are many other ways to get involved beyond the trainings as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Lynn. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking to Lynn Doe, and our listeners can find out more information by going to the Climate Reality website and the other websites such as The Verb. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to bze.org.au and click on Media, then Podcasts. If you enjoy this program and would like to donate, just go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we hope to catch you again next week. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Time Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.